Lada Udgayati Quachit. Quachit, sometimes. Rudati, cries. Vaikunta Chinta, by thoughts of Krishna. Shabala Chaitana, whose mind was bewildered. Quachit, sometimes. Hasati, laughs. Tachinta, by thoughts of him. Ahladaha being jubilant. Udgayati chants very loudly. Kvachit sometimes. Translation, because of advancement in Krishna consciousness, he sometimes cried, sometimes laughed, sometimes expressed jubilation, and sometimes sang loudly. Purport, this verse further clarifies the comparison of a devotee to a child. If a mother leaves her small child in his bed or cradle and goes away to attend some family duties, the child immediately understands that his mother has gone away and therefore he cries. As soon as the mother returns and cares for the child, the child laughs and becomes jubilant. Similarly, Prahlad Maharaj, being always absorbed in thoughts of Krishna, sometimes felt separation, thinking, where is Krishna? This is explained by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Sunyai tam jagat sarvam govinda virahena me. When an exalted devotee feels that Krishna is invisible, having gone away, he cries in separation. Sometimes when he sees that Krishna has returned to care for him, he laughs, just as a child sometimes laughs upon understanding that his mother is taking care of him. These symptoms are called bhava. In nectar devotion, various bhavas, ecstatic conditions of a devotee are fully described. These bhavas are visible in the activities of a pure, of a perfect devotee. So there's a series of verses here explaining uh, the uh, characteristics of Prahlad, who was a small child. And as we see from these verses, he was completely absorbed in the Supreme Lord and uh, was exhibiting various symptoms which are described in the nectar devotion called bhavas. Uh, sometimes these are sattvika bhavas, uh, which are 
actually unconscious, we don't consciously do them, but by strong emotion certain things happened, huh? uh, such as crying, as explained here. Uh, Rudati, he cries out for the Lord, and then he has tears in his eyes, etc. Uh, so we're familiar with this in the material world. Does anybody cry? Nobody cries? Sometimes? <laughs> so why do people cry in the material world? Some pain, yeah? Physical or mental pain, so they all cry. People cry. Not just children, adults also cry. Yeah? So they have some great affliction. Yeah? And because of that, they will cry. And it's, uh, it's not considered a good symptom. Nobody welcomes that. Nobody wants to be in a state of lamentation or sorrow, etc. They'd rather be laughing. Huh? So in the material world, uh, such symptoms are not considered to be very auspicious. Huh? So if we go to a house and everybody's crying, we don't want to go in that house. Huh? House of lamentation, whatever like that. So... Uh, we have this duality in the material world between the states of sadness and lamentation and the states of joy. And we prefer the states of joy and we try to avoid the states of lamentation, etc. That's considered very inauspicious. Hmm. Uh, however, in the material world, we can never avoid both states. We get both states. Huh? And, unfortunately, there's no way of avoiding that. Why? Because that's the nature of everything in the material world. Everything is temporary. And everything that gives us joy is subject to destruction. Whether it is family members or objects or whatever. It will all get destroyed, ultimately. And if not then, then at least we get destroyed. And then we have to lose everything. <laughs> So even if you're the wealthiest person in the world and you have all the money to buy everything and even if it breaks, even if it gets destroyed, you can buy a new one, doesn't matter. In that sense, okay, you can remain happy. But still, sooner or later, you will also die and you cannot take your money with you. You can no longer purchase anything. <laughs> you lose everything at the point of death. So that is, again, sadness, lamentation, etc. So it's inescapable in this material world. Uh, so how is it that here we find great devotee of the Lord beyond everything in the material world, completely in bliss. Our scripture says you go to the spiritual world, infinite ananda, happiness forever, bliss, eternal bliss, no more suffering. And we see the great devotees are crying. What's the, what's the point? <laughs> Go to the spiritual world, we end up suffering like we're suffering in the material world. Not only that, you will see that the higher you go, the more they suffer. So who has the greatest suffering? The gopis. So Prabhupada here quotes from his uh, uh that one moment appears like a yuga in separation from Krishna. Huh? Uh, so this is a
they will appear to almost die. There's one Devachari Bhava called Mriti, which means So of course, they don't really die, but it's death-like symptoms. And everyone is like, ah, Radha's going to die out of separation from Krishna. So definitely it does not look very blissful. It looks like it's full of lamentation. And uh, we see this, of course, in all sorts of states. Uh, for instance, when uh, Krishna was in the Rasalila with the gopis, and then, or before the, actually the Rasalila, he was talking to them. Suddenly he disappears. And then everyone's lamenting. And they all look for Krishna. And then they see the footprints. And there's Krishna's footprints. And there's some gopis' footprints there also. And they follow the footprints. And then they find Radha's also lying there, and there's no Krishna. And Radha's lamenting again. And then everybody laments. And they're all helpless. Huh? And they, they look for Krishna, they can't find him. And they're hopeless. And they wander down to the bank of the Jamuna River. So this is a state of complete devastation uh, in separation from Krishna. So that type of misery because of separation from Krishna or any form of the Lord, uh, is, it reaches its highest peak in the gopis. And they're the highest devotees. But they experience the greatest pain. So that, what is that? Why do we want to go to the spiritual world if we're going to have to suffer like that? <laughs> Let's stay in the material world. We can suffer this way. <laughs> so, answer is that that actually is not pain like we experience in the material world. It looks very similar, uh, but it is very, very different. Uh, in the material world, we suffer because we're attached to material objects or material bodies, and we lose them. This suffering is caused by not a material object, but loss of Krishna who's the supreme spiritual object, who's eternal, who never gets destroyed. So it's quite different. It's spiritual object, not material object. Furthermore, the lamentation is because of great attachment to Krishna. Our material lamentations is because of great attachment to a material object. So the lamentation is the result of our bhakti and our prema. It's not in the material world, it's not prema, it's not bhakti, and we're lamenting. So, uh, that uh, the the lamentation is not simply because I've lost something, uh, but but Krishna is not present, we lose the opportunity of serving him, and therefore we lament. In the material world, we lament because I don't have an object of enjoyment. In the spiritual world, we lament the loss because we no longer serve the Lord. So, the lamentation is quite different. So, though it looks similar, it is quite different. And therefore, in the Nectar Devotion and in other texts, it's explained that these are ecstatic symptoms of prema itself. So when there is lamentation in the spiritual world, it actually becomes a type of rasa, secondary rasa, based on a primary rasa of love. So then if we get a short period,
period of lamentation. Okay, it becomes a little rasa, then it will disappear. Which means that all of these secondary rasas like lamentation and fear and whatever, they all result ultimately in Krishna coming and then bliss. That doesn't happen in the material world. <laughs> the lamentation does not resolve into happiness in all cases. It just continues to be lamentation, lamentation, lamentation. Spiritual world, it always resolves back into the bliss. Why? Because that lamentation is dependent upon the bliss. That basic rasa with Krishna, which may be Madhurya rasa or Sakya rasa or whatever. So it appears and disappears. So why is it there at all? For the simple reason that there is variety in the spiritual world. And therefore there will be separation and meeting and consequently we will get joy and lamentation. But it always results in Krishna meeting again and then in joy. So that's the only reason why. Of course it's also said that separation makes meeting more joyful. <laughs> Even in the material world I think there's a saying like that. So uh, therefore the, uh, the meeting and separation are intrinsic parts of the pastimes in the spiritual world and thus the lamentation and separation and the joy in meeting are inevitably related to each other. They coexist at all times. So we'll find in Nectar Devotion, for instance, that when it describes the different rasas, the Stai Bhava and Prema, then there'll be the Stai Bhava, and then we'll have Stai Bhava, that's the basic you know, emotion like Madhuri or Sakya, in union when Krishna is with his devotee, then certain symptoms manifest. Then they have a whole other section in separation. A whole other set of symptoms. <laughs> the same stai bhava in separation. So, in other words, uh, these are parts of prema itself. And though it looks like lamentation, and here Prahlad is crying, uh, it's not uh, like in the material world. It's quite different. It's part of prema itself. So, it may appear like normal activities of the world, but it's quite different. Huh? And it resolves into part of bliss. <clears throat> um, of course, that is difficult for us to understand because we have not attained rasa and a permanent relationship with Krishna. So it's a little bit difficult to understand, but at least theoretically we can understand it because the relationship is with Krishna. Mm. Ah. Of course, even if we develop spiritual realization and rasa, even then, not everything is completely understandable. <laughs> everything is very deep in the spiritual world. Everything is very mysterious in the spiritual world. So we find the great devotees often puzzled. Huh? Uh, Bhishma is puzzled. Kunti is puzzled. Why is this happening like this? We can't understand what the Lord's plan is. Eh? We are bewildered. What is this? Huh? And similarly in the spiritual world, the body says, well, we don't know what's happening. <laughs> Why is this happening? Huh? That again is part of the arrangements in pastimes. The devotees are limited. Even, of course, they're not limited in the normal sense as in the material world, but still. They get covered by yoga maya, so they can only 
comprehend a certain aspect of pastimes and other things are completely beyond them to understand. And when it happens, they are completely surprised. Huh? So that again is an element of the spiritual world. It's arranged like that in order that the pastimes are continually varied and continually exciting and novel, ever new. They never get worn out, even though they may appear to be doing the same activities every day. So certain aspects are very, very profound, such that uh, Sanatan Goswami says that uh, this uh, separation and the feeling of lamentation is such that, in the spiritual world, is such that uh, actually within that lamentation there is the highest bliss. But how can there be bliss in lamentation? The gopis are lamenting, how can there be the great bliss? And it's greater than the bliss in union with Krishna, when he, where they meet Krishna. How can that be? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the experience they have. And we can't understand how is that so. Huh? So it's beyond us, actually, to understand. Yeah. So Sanatana Goswami says, well, the only one who can explain it is Radha. So if you get to meet Radha, you can ask her. <laughs> but even if you ask her and she gives an explanation, you may not understand what it is. <laughs> so that's the depth of the emotions there and how the contradictory things may appear, etc. So we cannot completely understand anything. Huh? Uh, nevertheless, we can appreciate the, the depth of the feelings and the, uh, how everything is covered by bliss in the spiritual world. So nothing in the spiritual world is imperfect. There is no fault there at all. What appear, uh, may appear to be a fault for us is actually not a fault at all. It is part of the perfection there. So in this particular verse, we have... Uh, these symptoms of uh, Prahlad and he is crying and then he's laughing or whatever and jubilation, singing or whatever. So these are all uh, symptoms of a devotee who has some realization. These symptoms begin to appear at the stage of bhava and they become more pronounced at the stage of prema. So these are we can say, external symptoms and by that we can to some degree judge the status of a devotee. Hmm? But that is not an absolute standard also because people can imitate. People can cry. People can faint. Hmm? So uh, people can do that. Why? <laughs> so that the people will think they're great devotees. <laughs> so that's also there. Uh, not only in India, maybe other places also may have imitating symptoms or whatever, but it is there in India and therefore we also cannot take simply these symptoms as the absolute standard for judging how advanced a devotee is. So in one place in Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada says the real symptom is how much they speak about Krishna. <laughs> they have all the symptoms but they're not thinking of Krishna at all, well, then what's the use? It's all, you know, a bogus show. So, here we see that uh, Prahlad actually is singing and glorifying the Lord at all times also. So he's very absorbed in the Supreme Lord. So that absorption is what gives rise to all of these different uh, external symptoms like that. Huh? So along with the external symptoms, we also have to, to some degree, 
be able to judge the internal qualities of a person. However, uh, Rupa Goswami in Nectar Devotion also says that, uh, talking about the Prema Bhakta, that actually uh, we can't describe that devotee. We cannot give up a bunch of symptoms and say, this is how we identify that person. It's beyond description. You can, you can never describe who was a Prem Bhakta at all. That's at the very beginning of Nectar Devotion. He says this. You can't really describe him at all. Huh? And even for the Bhav Bhakta, uh, he gives the example of the, uh, the moon. Uh, because the person at the stage of bhava may appear to have faults. And then we've been criticizing, okay, he's not actually realizing Krishna because he's this fault, he has this fault, he has this fault, whatever like that. Yeah. If he's actually on bhava, then he shouldn't have any of these faults because ahankara has gone. And ahankara is the basis of all of our faults. So if he has no ahankara, he should have no faults. Yeah, it looks like a fault, he's got a fault. Yeah. So uh, then he says in relation to that, that uh, it's like criticizing the moon because the moon has spots. <laughs> so generally, uh, the moon is praised in poetry as being, you know, beautiful and full of light and cooling, etc. It takes away the pain and whatever, like that. But if we look closely, we'll see there's spots on the moon. So if we're a fault finder, then instead of praising the moon, say, no, no, the moon's not so wonderful and beautiful after all, because look, we see there's a spot there and a spot there and a spot there. <laughs> so this way we can criticize the moon. But the poets never do that. They will just praise the moon because of its beautiful light and its soothing quality, etc. And they don't look at the faults at all. It's just like that. What may appear to be a fault in a person with bhava, it's not actually a fault because he has bhava. So the moon may appear to have false, but it's the moon, so therefore don't criticize it. <laughs> so because he has bhava, it looks like a fault, don't criticize it. It may appear to be a fault, it's not a fault. So in that way he says, the state of bhava is very rare. Yeah? And that person is very pure, so therefore it would look like a fault, it may not be a fault at all, so don't criticize him. Yeah? In any case, whether a person is on bhava or prema, they are very difficult to understand because they do not act like normal people. And we also expect even devotees should act normally. And they act a little abnormally, though we say, well, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> they look crazy or something. <laughs> yeah, you've got to speak to them, stop them, whatever. Abnormal. So uh, we, want to, we want to put people into categories like that. But with a person on that elevated state, you cannot put him into categories because he's beyond all rules and regulations. He's like the Avaduta or the Parmahamsa or whatever like that. Completely, he may be completely oblivious of all rules of society. So therefore, uh, we have examples of that like uh, Jad Bharata. According to normal rules, he looked very strange, <laughs> acted very strange. Sukadev Goswami. Just walking around naked and the children were, you know, mocking and making fun of him like that. So that's the nature of devotees. Sometimes we don't know their elevated state. It's very, very difficult for us to tell. And only someone who is very elevated can tell. So they're very, very difficult to. So therefore we have to be very careful in how we treat all the sorts of devotees and start judging them.
Of course, it is the nature of the Madhyama, or we can say it's the good quality of the Madma, Mad, Madhyama devotee and his cause of advancement that he can distinguish between devotee and non-devotee and between different grades of devotees. That's the cause of his advancement. So we do have to, to some degree, do that. But then there's a certain limit also, and then beyond that we shouldn't start judging. <laughs> so, uh, therefore, yeah, we can judge, and at the same time, when they're very elevated, we can't really judge too much because we're incapable of doing that at our stage. Huh? So for us, yes, we do have to make some consideration of higher and lower, etc., based on some sort of standards, um, which are, you could say, visible or whatever. And according to that, we can uh, treat devotees differently, and we can also advance based on the way we treat devotees. Uh, so that's also very valuable for us. Huh? Yeah. So when we're talking about these symptoms, these are more elevated. The laughing and crying and the whatever, they create, uh, their symptoms on a very high state in bhava and prema. So quite different from our particular state. So. Uh, and of course, there's others, uh, yeah, other symptoms here described as well. So uh, we cannot really judge the persons in that state. But for persons in the lower state, yes, we have to. Some we make distinctions, and based on those distinctions, we have to treat devotees in different ways. So those who are kinishtas, we treat in one way. That is, we try to give good instructions. Those who are madhyamas, we act in a friendly way, and we discuss together. Those on a higher level, then we follow their instructions and offer them respects. In all cases, we offer respect to everyone, but then the way we treat them is slightly different. So based on that, then we advance in our devotional service. So on our stage, yes, we make distinctions, but on those high states, we can't really judge too much. Uh, okay, any question there? Hmm. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for the class. Um, when I hear of the spiritual world, um, you know, one can say that it sounds like, you know, you got Radharani, Krishna, Narad Muni, and they're all just playing around on a, on a show, and you're just watching. You know, and it sounds, doesn't sound so attractive. <laughs> so, like, what would you say to someone who thinks that way? Oh, well, um, this is called Leela, which means a pastime. And uh, it's not that one looks at it. If one is qualified, one enters into it. One is part of the pastime. Uh, uh, so, uh, just like we may have dramas, and then people look at the drama, that's one thing. But then, an actor in the drama is a little bit different. He's completely involved in it. So something like that. But then it's not a drama itself, it's like life itself. <laughs> so there is no drama there. There's actually life itself is like that. And then you enter into it. That's your qualification for going to the spiritual world. You can enter into it to, in various degrees, according to your rasas. And then you're part of that. And, uh, it's a complete involvement. It's not a temporary thing. You retire after a night. <laughs> you're continually in that, and you're completely active in that. 
and the motivation there is that it's completely satisfying and blissful and it's eternal. Thank you, Maharaj. Uh, Maharaj, you mentioned about uh, the rasas and the behavior of a very advanced devotee, Prema Bhakta. In mm -hmm. the 10th canto, we see that uh, uh, when the advanced devotees are going through separation, uh, there are prayers from the Madhuri rasa, they speak on the level of dasya, similarly on the level of vatsalya, they uh, offer a prayer on the level of dasya, etc. So, in separation, we can see there is such a, a change in the mood as uh -huh. they are going through different emotions. Why there is such a change from Valsilya to Dasya, for example, Nanda Maharaj in separation, you know, or let me engage my uh -huh. senses, mind, words, yeah. etc. in your service. Uh -huh. Of course, within all Rasas, there are elements of other Rasas automatically. And that dasya, of course, is inherent in everybody in the spiritual world. Everyone's nitya krishna das, and we're all servants, so whatever rasa you have, you're always a servant. So that's always there. And we'll see, like in Madhurya rasa, there is great intimacy of like sakya, in a sense, because they have this pranaya, etc., within it also, affectionate state of uh, say confidentiality, etc., intimacy. So many of the rasas have things which are in other rasas as well. There are, of course, unique features of each rasa which don't conflict also, but there are many elements which are in common. Uh, and when uh, in separation uh, one begins to lament, etc., one is in a very miserable position. And that miserable position invokes a type of dasya, Humility, because you know, so low and Krishna so high, whatever like that. So that's one reason why it can manifest there. Another aspect, of course, is sometimes like when the gopis are separate, then they start Krishna. Oh, you're the supreme Lord. You're the witness of everything. And so why are they doing that? Because in Vrindavan you shouldn't see Krishna as God, etc. But then they start thinking, oh yeah, he he's the witness of everything. He's the creator of the world. So within, um, especially when there's separation, great anxiety then they may revert into this idea of trying to respect him as Supreme Lord, etc. Uh, so it's not that completely they just realize Krishna as their friend, when in great distress then they will switch and they will see that aspect also, which means that they have all knowledge, on both aspects of the Lord. But then again, when uh, that anxiety is finished with, that disappears completely. So the prominent aspect within Vrindavan is they don't see Krishna as Supreme Lord at all, but then when there is great stress, then that may surface. But then it's temporary and it's covered up again. So it's not that they're completely unaware of his powers, but it only manifests in these distressful situations. Thank you so much, Maharaj. Um, you were mentioning about um, the higher stages um, the Bhava platform and everything that we can't experience it, but we can theoretically understand. I was just thinking for a, a sadhaka when um, when we're reading um, the scriptures or when we're hearing, and that point also we can just theoretically understand. But um, when it comes to practical application, like in our life, yeah. there seems to be like a separation. Like you understand it, but you cannot apply it. You just feel like, why can't I do it? Yeah. 
um, yeah, can you just give some advice on that? Yeah. Well, probably not just scripture. In material world, the same applies. You can study things, but then you, you know, put them into practice also. <laughs> so many things we have. Or, yeah, even the laws. People study the laws, but then they may not follow the laws also, yeah? <laughs> Everybody learns the laws of the country, but some people prefer not to follow them, etc. So the persons that don't follow say, okay, they can't control their minds too much, like that. So in devotional service, we have vidis, or rules also. And then people may find difficult to follow also. So uh, that's why there's like a minimum. Uh, qualification for performing bhakti is you're not too materially attached, not too detached, so they're not expected to, you know, completely withdraw your senses from everything in the material world, but at least there has to be some sort of standard of willingness to follow some control of the senses and control of the mind, and then that's a qualification for performing bhakti. And below that, then, okay, you can do something, but, you know, it's not going to be very perfect or whatever. So we do have to have a, some sort of minimum standards. And then beyond that, then we have you know, degrees in which we can make these rules or follow them more perfectly and more perfectly and more perfectly. But to some extent, we have to follow. Yeah? Uh, so uh, the reason for this, of course, is that uh, the qualification is faith. And faith doesn't mean we have complete control of our senses. <laughs> we have that conviction, but, and a willingness to follow. But it doesn't mean we're completely following. We do have anartas, etc., material attachments. So, bhakti is very liberal and doesn't have a high standard that you have to do this, this, this. Okay, faith, good. <laughs> so, and we have a minimum standard of sense control. Yeah? So then we can practice steadily. And through that, then gradually all of these distractions and things in the mind, etc., will get destroyed. The anartas will gradually get destroyed through that sincere practice. Yeah? So if we have difficulty practicing, we got the rules, we can't follow perfectly, by the practice of bhakti itself, then eventually we should come to that standard. But at least if the standard is there, we can aim for that standard. <laughs> through the practice of bhakti, we try to get to that standard where we're doing it nicely. Hare Krishna Bhanaswami. Thank you very much for a wonderful class. <clears throat> uh, we are doing devotional service for many years, but how to increase our attachment to the lotus feet of Krishna, other than like holy name, chanting the holy name, associating with devotees, doing deity worship, all those five things they are doing. Yeah. But how to increase further, so the deep love for Lotus Feet oh. of Krishna. Well, that, that's, uh, that's it. The, the, <laughs> the process of increasing your attraction for Krishna is bhakti. So we have these five elements. You can add more elements than the five if you want to. Uh, uh, but the other point, of course, is the, the, the negatives, to avoid the aparads, to avoid this, to avoid that, and avoid that. That we also have to follow. Yeah? And the, the third element, I can say, is the most important, maybe, is that in doing all of this, we should understand it's not just an activity, uh, because the very definition of bhakti is anukhena krishna nosilanam to cultivate a relationship with Krishna in a favorable way. That means with affection. So when we're performing all of these things, we are actually doing it out of 
affection, positive affection, not for any other reason. So when we do the chanting or the worship or whatever, then that attitude should be there with the act itself. And then it becomes more powerful to help us advance. Thank you. Uh, Maharaj, uh, in a couple of verses before, Prahlad Maharaj is described as Krishna Graha Grihitatma. So, there, the use of the word Krishna, yeah. is it a generic use as Krishna, including all the lords, or is there any specific reason uh, using the word uh, Krishna? I don't know if uh, Vishwanath has commented that at all. I know that um, I'm doing Srinath Chakravarti's commentary now. So he just takes every word. If it says Purusha, he says, that means Krishna. But <laughs> whoever's praising any Manvatara period shall take it as Krishna, for instance. So he just says, Krishna's glorified everywhere. So that's and so, uh, one reason, of course, is yes, Krishna's glorified. So therefore, he puts the word Krishna there. Uh, the, the counter argument would be, well, like, uh, Krishna hasn't appeared because that's only Chaksusa Manvatara. And we, we, it's not the right manvantara for Krishna to appear, so nobody knows about Krishna. They all know about Vishnu instead, or Nishimadeva, or whatever, but not Krishna. So Krishna is very rare, so uh, that. Uh, but the other idea is, I think there is a commentary that does say that he mentions Krishna because, yes, it's already there in the scripture. So he's, it's known that Krishna appears. That's also, therefore, he uses that word there, <laughs> because he knows Krishna also about Krishna, even though his attraction may not be for Krishna completely, at least he knows Krishna is there because from scripture. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for the class. <clears throat> um, you mentioned um, about the, the mode of separation, how uh, we see in only exalted personalities that they experience this mode of separation at a very high level. And we often we hear that we shouldn't imitate these devotees but in, I guess, the neophyte stage, sometimes when we're, I guess, away from the deities for a prolonged uh, extent of time, we feel a little bit of mood of separation from the deities, or yeah. maybe when we're actually doing some seva or going on books, we feel a little bit of, maybe, uh, we feel the material energy, so we might struggle or be in a miserable situation, so we have that kind of mood of separation of wanting to see Krishna in that mm. moment. Yeah. So is this, as, is this kind of feeling us trying to imitate that mood of separation, or is this something that we shouldn't be trying to feel uh -huh. at all. No, that's uh, in general, it's not like an imitation, it's rather natural that we're trying to take shelter of Krishna and remember, uh, remember Krishna at all times and when we're in trying situations then we you know, feel the need for Krishna, etc. So that's just a natural result of our uh, commitment and our faith and our attraction to Krishna. So nothing wrong with that. That's actually, you can say, positive. It helps us advance. Thank you. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Um, Krishna's uh, beauty is considered as one of his uh, opulences, uh, like in the Aishwaryasya, Samagrasya, Viryasya, that verse. Mm -hmm. Beauty is considered as one of the opulence of Krishna. And in the 64 items, in the last four, it says about Leela and uh, Rupa Madhuri. Mm -hmm. So, my question is. Is beauty considered as an aspect of sweetness of Krishna or is it an opulence? Is it part of Aishwarya or uh, sweetness? Oh, well, all forms of the Lord are beautiful. Yeah. 
uh, we won't have an ugly form of the Lord. <laughs> Even Varaha is beautiful, and Hayagriva is beautiful, and Anantashesha is beautiful, even as a snake. Uh, so all the forms of the uh, Lord are beautiful, spiritually, because anything spiritual is beautiful. Now the quality of Rupa Madhurya is that beauty is also especially sweet, which means that the beauty invokes intimacy more than the beauty of Vishnu. Vishnu has beauty, but there's also that reverence attached to that type of beauty because of the particular form with four arms and holding a club and a whatever like that. It's beautiful, but it also invokes reverence. <laughs> the form of Krishna invokes intimacy. We forget him as Supreme Lord and we just take him as our friend or whatever. Yeah? So that's the type of beauty of Krishna in Vrindavan particularly. It's somewhat there even in Dwarka, even though he may have four arms or two arms or whatever. Even then, that form it may be similar to the Vishnu forms, because he has four arms sometimes, but still it's in a superior position there. That's also superior to the Vishnu forms or whatever. There's little sweetness, but it's sweetest in Vrindavan, where he's in the two-arm form. Thank you. Okay, fine. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Maharaj, you just mentioned that Krishna's appearance is very rare while you were just answering yeah, once Prabhu's in question. Day of Brahma. So, when, so Krishna appears once in Day of Brahma and we understand Lord Chaitanya appears in, in the immediate next Kali yeah. Yuga. So that same rule is for other Leela avatars like Lord Rama also? It's very rare appearance? It looks like Rama is the same, but some like uh, Vamana I think appears three times, Matsya appears fourteen times. Uh, Varaha several times also, yeah. So some appear a few times, some appear once. Huh? So Rama seems to appear once also in a day of Brahma. So in Kali Yuga basically no Vishnu Tattva appears, it's just empowered living entities who will come and give the holy name? Is uh, that yeah, uh, because that's explained I think by Rupa Goswami and Lago Bhagavatamrita that uh, the Lord is Tri Yuga. So therefore, he doesn't appear in Kali Yuga. But then, what do we do about Kali Yuga avatar? <laughs> so they said, okay, Shaktivesh avatar appears there in Kali Yuga in general. But in the case of Krishna, and in the case of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they're special. So Krishna is not just an avatar; he's Swayam Bhagavan when he appears in as Krishna. The others, of course, he's regular avatar or whatever. But when he Krishna comes, then he is Swayam Bhagavan Krishna, and when uh, Lord Chaitanya comes, he's also avatar, he's also non-different from Krishna. He's not a Shaktivesha avatar or a normal avatar at all, you know, special. So both are very special. So from this appears that Lord Ram, Lord Krishna and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they all come in similar time, like one after another, because if Lord Ram also appears once, yeah, and he has appeared in this Treta Yuga, Ah, no, 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 If no, he no, has, no. I don't know. Uh, Rama appears in the 24th cycle of Vaivasatamanvantara. We're in the 28th cycle. So it's like 16 million years before. <laughs> <laughs> Four yuga cycles previously. It's not the Treta Yuga, this Treta Yuga, and then Dwarpa and Kali. It's uh, 16 million years before in another cycle, actually. 
So it's you know. So with time. sorry, so with so, such so much time that has passed. So what is the claim of all the pastime places of Lord Ram where? You know, we're talking about millions of years before, and here we have lost track well, of a few thousand years. Inconceivable nature of the Dharma. <laughs> it's, you know, it can be eternal, so it doesn't have to be subject to the changes of, you know, climates and glaciers and whatever, with the movings of continents <laughs> appearing and disappearing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, fine. Hare Krishna.